Miami's leading Proud Boy is convicted of sedition in the January 6th riots. Are Florida politics driving education talent away? How bad will Haiti's eruption of vigilantism get? This is the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we look at the convictions of far-right-wing Proud Boys members for inciting insurrection against the U.S. and how those extremists have thrived in Miami. We'll also examine the trouble the Broward School Board is having as it tries to recruit a new superintendent. And we'll ask, is Florida's hard-right political turn discouraging qualified candidates? And finally, will a vigilante movement take down Haiti's gang monster or become a new monster. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. The far right wing, all male hate group known as the Proud Boys once called themselves Donald Trump's army. Yesterday, a federal jury in Washington, D.C. called them seditionists. Four of the Proud Boys members, including its former leader, Enrique Tarrio of Miami, were found guilty of seditious conspiracy in the violent mob insurrection of January 6, 2021. That riot tried to overthrow the U.S. Congress's certification of the 2020 presidential election that then-President Trump had lost. A fifth Proud Boy member was convicted of other related felonies, but not sedition. The verdicts resonate especially loudly here in South Florida, where Tario and so many other Proud Boys found not just acceptance and encouragement, but political leadership positions. At least five Proud Boys have in recent years occupied seats on the Miami-Dade Republican Executive Committee. Will yesterday's convictions finally dampen enthusiasm here for an organization that hate group watchdogs call fascist and white supremacist? Let us know your thoughts. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to discuss the Proud Boy convictions and the Proud Boy phenomenon in Miami are Amy Driscoll, Deputy Editorial Page Editor for the Miami Herald, and Jay Weaver, the Herald's federal crimes reporter. Great to have both of you on the South Florida Roundup. Jay, I want to start with you because you've been following this trial, especially Enrique Tarrio's role. Explain, please, what the seditious conspiracy charge means in this case. Well, it's a big word, and it's a scary word. And in a nutshell, it it means that these men were accused of plotting to overthrow the U.S. government. Now, we know they didn't succeed. So what did the government prosecutors have to prove here? What they had to prove is that as an element of the crime, Tario and his colleagues and the Proud Boys were using words of such violence and such force that they encouraged people, including the Proud Boys themselves, to participate in the riot, the protest, the insurrection at the Capitol. And their words were enough to do it. Those words are protected seemingly by the First Amendment and free speech, but they crossed the line into inciting this this riot, this this, this insurrection, because their words online and plotting the storming of the Capitol led to the actual storming of the Capitol and violence 
There was vandalism, damage to property. Seven people officially were killed, including a Metro police officer. So, in effect, they conspired to commit this sedition. They had, the government had to show they intended to use force. And the government, you know, didn't have to show that it was actual force, just the force of their words. And that, of course, their ultimate endgame was to stop the certification by Congress of the 2020 presidential electoral college vote. Right. So what it boils down to is that sedition, in, a, in effect, uh, means inciting the insurrection, the kind of insurrection that happened that we saw happen on, on January 6th. That's right. With the, with the objective unfulfilled objective to stop the transition of government from one president to another in a peaceful way. And they used violence to thwart that transition to the extent they could. And as we all know, Congress ultimately certified the Electoral College vote and Biden was sworn in on January 20th. Now, we should point out, Tario did not take part in the January 6th riot because he'd been arrested for something else days earlier. Still, why is he so culpable in this case, Jay? Well, that's that's a good question, and it was part of his defense. He was arrested in connection with a Black Lives Matter protest in in the aftermath of the presidential election that November 2020, and he himself had to appear in Washington in connection with the charges in that case. He was then ordered to leave Washington. He did so the day before the January 6th protest. President Trump gave his speech on the National Mall. All of these, you know, extreme right-wingers were gathered there. They then marched to the, and stormed to the Capitol. At that time, you know, what was going on is, is is that the Proud Boy leader, Enrique Tarrio, had already laid the groundwork and plotted with his colleagues right. to have them storm the Capitol. And and so he did it beforehand. He did it through text messages. They called themselves the Ministry of Defense. He did it during the course of the actual um, storming of the Capitol. And he said, we can do this. We're doing this. Don't leave. You know, we're doing this. And so he clearly was engaged, even though he will claim or claimed rather that he was not physically there. Right. Now, Jay, this is the second time now that federal prosecutors have had success with the sedition charge involving the January 6th insurrection. In another earlier trial, members of the extremist right wing group known as the Oath Keepers were convicted for sedition. How important will this be, do you think, in terms of reining in the activities and and influence of these hate groups? Well, I think these hate groups will continue to propagate and and, and spread their, their, their propaganda and violence, and I think that they're not going to go away. But will they ever attempt to do something like this again? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. This was an extraordinary event uh, that we will probably never see in our country again. I mean, the Justice Department has arrested and convicted, well, they've arrested more than 900 defendants. They have, you know, convicted more than half of those. Uh, you know, a, a handful at this point, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, have been convicted of the conspiracy to commit sedition, which is the most serious, you know, crime and carries up to 20 years. Mm-hmm. I think it will be a deterrent to the extent that they won't come to the Capitol and storm it again and commit this kind right. of violence. Mm-hmm. But I do think that these types of extremists will gather in cities around America and continue to protest, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the changing aspects of our political culture right. in America mm-hmm. that they so despise. Amy Driscoll, let me turn to you. 
you wrote the trenchant editorial in the Miami Herald this morning, whose headline reads, Proud Boys Tario plotted to keep Trump in power, but Miami is guilty too. Tell us what you meant by that last part, Miami is guilty too. All right. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, we, we, you know, on the board, we talked about this, but yes, I, I wrote the editorial um, because we have had in Miami plenty of warning about what this guy is like, right? He's been arrested repeatedly. He was, um, you know, charged and convicted in that, in that Black Lives Matter banner burning in, in, uh, in Washington. Um, and before that, he was one of the people in 2018 who was, pounding on the door or with the group that was pounding on the door um, when Donna Shalala was running and Nancy Pelosi had come to visit. Right. They pounded on the door and they, they were screaming, open up, it's the Proud Boys in here. They were, um, you know, yelling obscenities. It was, you know, it's very frightening kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Miami but- has had plenty of time <laughs> to know what kind of person they're dealing with. And yet the GOP here has seems to have a problem with disavowing the Proud Boys and Enrique Tarrio. Right. And the, the Proud Boys were founded in 2016, not coincidentally the year Donald Trump won the presidency. What, to your mind, are the most important things to know about Enrique Tarrio, especially if we're looking for signs of future extremist groups like the Proud Boys here in our community? Well, I mean, I think he's, he's a warning sign, um, you know, of what, of what can happen. I think that... Um, when we don't disavow somebody publicly or talk about, you know, why his views are so problematic, then it, it feeds the, the problem. And so when we look at Enrique Tarrio, you know, we had these warning signs, and yet the Miami-Dade GOP seemed to want to just not, not look at that very carefully. There was a lot of dissembling about his, his role or what he was like and, and, and the role of Proud Boys in the Miami-Dade Executive Committee, uh, yeah. Republican Executive Committee. So when I look at Enrique Tarrio, I think that, you know, we see the kinds of actions that he took, and yet we did not disavow him openly, and it makes me wonder what kind of a city Miami really wants to be. Yeah, you ask in the editorial, and I quote, now can we finally toss the other Proud Boys from the local GOP executive committee where this hate group has wormed its way in? Why was it so easy for known members of a group like the Proud Boys to win seats on the Miami-Dade Republican Executive Committee? Well, I guess you'd have to ask the voters <laughs> on that one. Right. But, uh, you know, to me, again, it's like it's, it's a, it, it, it starts at the top. You know, DeSantis also refused to come down really hard on neo-Nazi demonstrators in Orlando. He eventually, I think after he was pressed many times, he finally said something along the lines of they were a bunch of knuckleheads. That is not disavowing people in a strong fashion. It does not send the message that we will not tolerate this kind of, you know, hate hate groups and and yeah. um, and you know the, the the other the other you know things that that the Proud Boys are ostensibly they're considered a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm-hmm. Um, they embrace the misogynistic viewpoint. Um, they have had racist views. Um, so you know, I think we we all of those things together mean, you know, my, Miami did not did not do what it should have done, which was very, very forcefully say, we don't tolerate mm-hmm. this, but neither has the Santos. Right. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the sedition convictions of the Proud Boys and their influence here in Miami. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Jay, 
we should remember it wasn't just their mainstream political activity that made the Proud Boys controversial here. Um, as Amy just pointed out, there were also incidences of actual menace, notably what she pointed out in 2018 when Tario and his buddies tried to storm a Democratic Party office in Coral Gables, where then U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was visiting. Did episodes like that put the Proud Boys on the Justice Department's radar as we then approached January 6th in 2021? Yes, it, certainly. The Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, other extremist groups, there had been a lot of chatter um, on the Internet. Trump himself made it very clear that he wanted these groups to come to Washington on January 6th. This may not have been an, a concerted effort on the part of Trump organizing with these extremist groups to stage this protest and storm the Capitol. We may not know that, you know, yet. Um, certainly there doesn't seem to be evidence of their coordinated activities, but he obviously encouraged them to come. There was chatter about this on the Internet. There was chatter in, 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 you know, in groups that were, you know, uh, encrypted exchanges of information. This was all over the place. And I know that there were not only just Metro Police there, but there were FBI plants in, in the crowd. There were, you know, uh, there were law enforcement officers that were clearly aware of what could happen. I think they were a little bit overwhelmed, though. They didn't realize it was going to escalate to the point that they would storm the Capitol. But yes, there was fair warning. Yes, they knew that it could happen. And the fact that it did was probably, you know, uh, uh, more, more, more of a shock than anything else, you know. Um, and and I think that the handwriting was on the wall. And the problem isn't just speech. Everybody always talks about protected speech in this country. Hate speech is protected, but when it crosses the line into committing violence against people, right. when it incites, you know, an insurrection of the magnitude of January sixth, that's when it becomes more of a crime, and that's when the speech becomes you know, a mm -hmm. question of crossing the line. And Trump himself, you know, is under investigation. And in the final analysis, you know, what he said to Mike Pence and what Pence is now saying to the grand jury may be Trump's Achilles heel because Trump doesn't talk in text messages. He doesn't talk in emails. He doesn't communicate. He doesn't leave mm -hmm. breadcrumbs of speech here and there. He just gives speeches. So it all looks like it's protected mm -hmm. under the First Amendment. Right. But... You know, we may see a different outcome. Just give it some time. And as you point out in your editorial, Amy, Tario and the Proud Boys were joined in that demonstration in Coral Gables we just referred to by local politicians like Kevin Marino Cabrera. Uh, he's a Cuban-American who's now a Miami-Dade Miami County Commission member. Cabrera has since publicly disavowed the Proud Boys, but this points up the reality that the Proud Boys have been very popular here, especially with many in the Cuban-American and other Latino communities. Otario himself is Cuban. How do we explain that phenomenon, Amy? Yeah, I think we all, <laughs> those of us in Miami know that um, we've, we've seen video of Otario in front of Versailles, right? Um, he's been out there, you know, with his bullhorn, his black T-shirt and his, you know, dark sunglasses. Um, with a bunch of other men in black T-shirts, you know, all Proud Boys yelling. So there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of, of warning, but menace also. I think we also, when we're talking about First Amendment rights, you know, that one of the things that that um, that Rene Garcia, who's the GOP party chair here, told the the New York Times was that we have different points of view in our party. Right. That's how we are. And I, you know, it's like yes, there are different points of view, but. 
you know, there's a you don't have to say that you can't speak out loud, but you also probably need to be able to um, say you're not going to have that in your party. And that's where they keep falling down. Do you think, Amy, that these convictions, I mean, I go to Spanish language radio here in Miami, and whenever I listen in back in those days, for example, they were just constant, uh, constantly apologizing for the Proud Boys on, on, on right wing uh, Spanish language radio here, for example. Do you think the convictions will diminish that sort of thing in the culture of our community here a little bit more? I don't know. I mean, I think that's a, that's a very open question. It is a baffling thing um, to many people in this community that people who try to escape, you know, repression in other countries come here and then they, they are, you know, all too happy to embrace that same sort of tactic as long as it's on, you know, the, the side that they believe in at that moment. Right. That is a very slippery slope, and, I, and it's hard to understand why people would do that. Great insight. Jay, in the minute that we have left here, uh, the Proud Boys have a remarkable presence and influence, not just here, but across the country. Will these convictions uh, lead to, to the group's demise? But also, could this, as you pointed out, uh, hinted at earlier, could this hurt Trump in his own uh, dealings with with the, with the federal government that's uh, in their investigations uh, to the January sixth uh, riots. Well, you know, I'm not in the inner sanctum of the Proud Boys, but I do get the sense that they could reorganize under either their Proud Boys name, um, or or under you know under the Proud Boys name or under a different type of extreme right group. These guys are full of hatred. And they are ideologues, and they don't have a lot going for themselves. I'm not going to, you know, get pejorative here, but they really don't like the direction America has taken. They don't like the minority majority that has happened. Mm -hmm. They really prefer and espouse white supremacy. So if it's not through the Proud Boys, it will be through some other channel. Is it going to hurt Trump? No. That's why he tacitly approves all of this, you know, extreme right activity. You don't condemn them. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. And so you just don't do it. It should be condemned. Amy's right. But it's not. And the reason why it's not is because Governor DeSantis, other right, other Republicans who, who seem to be of the conservative bent, just tacitly approve this stuff by never condemning it because they don't want alienate that voter block. Mm -hmm. It's very important to the overall future of this Republican Party, which is not your grandfather's or your father's Republican Party anymore. Right. I, I, unfortunately, that's, that is the case. Jay Weaver is the Miami Herald's federal crime reporter. Amy Driscoll is the Herald's deputy editorial page editor. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank you for having us. Still to come, are Florida's politics discouraging applicants for Broward School Superintendent and other education jobs? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This week, Ralph Ferry, a consultant hired by Broward County Public Schools, presented the board with more than 25 applicants for the top job of superintendent. But there was a big caveat. Only two or three of them, Ferry said, were actually qualified. Why do so few quality candidates want to lead Florida's second largest school district and the country's sixth largest? Ferry's answer was pretty blunt. Florida's tumultuous education politics is driving them away. Several board members said afterward they agreed with Ferry, including Deborah Hickson. 
we live in paradise. People should be flocking to come here and they're staying in freezing cold places because they're not being micromanaged there. So you think the political climate has an impact? I 100 percent believe that the political climate has a huge impact. What they're referring to is the Florida state government's recent and right-wing barrage of intervention in local education policy, the restrictions it's ordered on everything from the pandemic to gender and race studies, and the feeling that school districts like Broward's have lost their autonomy. It's not just primary and secondary education that's feeling that anxiety. Florida's public colleges and universities also worry the current, more censorious environment will make it harder to recruit top-flight administrators, professors, researchers, and students. Do you share that fear, or is it exaggerated? And is it being felt in other areas besides education? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to discuss this is Scott Travis. He's the education reporter for the South Florida Sun-Sentinel. Scott, thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks. Good to be here. You've been the Sun-Sentinel's education expert for almost 25 years. Can you ever remember the Broward School Board or any school board here having this kind of trouble recruiting a superintendent? Uh, yes, I would say probably about a year ago or so, but probably for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when Superintendent Cartwright, the previous superintendent, uh, was applying, she was the interim superintendent. And a lot of people felt that uh, because she was already working in the system and she was already the interim that she probably had the edge for the job. So a lot of people, what I'm told, did not apply at that time. So I think it was probably for a different reason. Had there not been that dynamic, I think they probably would have gotten more. But certainly this time, it seems like with all of the negative publicity that Broward schools have gotten, plus all of the um what they see as micromanaging happening from the state uh, yeah. and also the un uncertainty of what's going to happen. The governor has removed school board members, so a superintendent doesn't necessarily know if the next who the next super the next school board member who might get in trouble is. Mm -hmm. And they may get hired by somebody and then get fired by a new board, which is what happened to the last superintendent. Right. So briefly run down for us, if you could, the handful of candidates who the board's consultant said meet the minimum qualifications. Okay, well, uh, one of them is probably the favorite is uh, Valerie Wanza, right. who is the, an internal uh, candidate. She, yeah, she's an internal candidate. So she is the one that Superintendent Smiley um, actually recommends. There is also uh, a couple. There's a Palm Beach County candidate, uh, Peter Lakata, who right. has. Yeah. So he uh, is a regional superintendent in Palm Beach County. And he has um, applied for many superintendent jobs, and he's been a finalist uh, many places before, including in Orange County. But he always kind of just falls a little short. So um, mm -hmm. then uh, we've also got... Uh, There's one from Waukegan, there. Wisconsin, right? Yeah, uh, Nault, I believe J is his name. J and he, Jason Nault, right. Mm -hmm. Jason Nault, and he used to be a... Uh, principal at Taravella High School in um, there. And then there's another one, Solano, I believe. Luis Solano, who is the deputy Luis. superintendent in Detroit. Right. So those are the four that they most like. And then there's two others mm -hmm. that the consultants say are meet the qualifications, but they're not 
wholeheartedly recommending them. And that right. would include Keith Oswald from uh, Palm Beach County and Wanda Paul, who used to work in Palm Beach County and is now in Texas. Now, in your article this week, you, you wrote that Broward School Board is looking for a, quote, transformational leader. And, and apparently none of the candidates so far represent that as far as the board's concerned. <laughs> Yeah, I think that they were hoping for somebody uh, maybe on the line of like um, Alberto Carvalho, who was, a, you know, obviously had a very successful right. uh, tenure when he was in Miami-Dade County. Oh, yeah. He, has he been, became um, like a rock star. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and then I mean, he's had a, some struggles in um, in L Los Angeles, but still would be considered a very attractive candidate. And I know mm -hmm. some board members were trying to recruit him, um, but he did not apply. But like most of the candidates that they got weren't even superintendents somewhere else. So they would like, yeah. they would think it would be great if you had somebody maybe at a slightly smaller school district, maybe the 15th or 20th largest school district and a superintendent there that wanted to move up to, mm -hmm. you know, one of the top 10 school districts in the country. Right. And there really weren't anybody like that. The most of the, the only candidates that were existing superintendents uh, had experience a very small school district. Now, the Broward Board's hiring consultant, Ralph Ferry, whom I, I mentioned before of the McPherson Jacobson firm, remarked that one of the things making more qualified candidates pause is the superintendent, quote, revolving door there. The, the Broward school system has had three superintendents in just the past two years. But that's a crisis that's largely Broward's making, is it not? I mean, you know, we're talking about a grand jury investigation into fraud and mismanagement for starters, no? Yeah, I think that uh, there was also some questions about the previous superintendent. She was one who uh, was brought in and probably would not have been hired had she not been hired as interim superintendent where she agreed to uh, not apply for the permanent job and then she got it. And then um, after the DeSantis removed some of the board members, then she became uh, really unpopular with the uh, DeSantis appointed board. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when some new board members got elected, uh, they were she was not popular with them either. So she mm -hmm. actually had to go through three different uh, boards. So yeah. that was a, a difficult thing. So basically that's and I mean, Erling Smiley was hired two months ago, but her idea was just to be an interim. So mm -hmm. I don't know that you could really count her as part of the revolving door, but but certainly, and, and I mean, Mr. Runcy stayed for almost 10 years. Yeah. So mm -hmm. there was stability there. And then, you know, we had the grand jury issues that came up and, sure. and he was arrested uh, or indicted, later cleared of uh, perjury charges. N never, but never, he left. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, but he left as a result of that. So I think right. probably... The revolving door may be a little overblown. I think okay. that probably just involves one superintendent that mm -hmm. didn't stay that long, which would be Cartwright. Nevertheless, it's not hard to understand why prospective, prospective Broward School superintendents would balk at applying for the job, given the cloud of growing state control over local districts. I mean, Scott, in, in that regard, what do you think are the factors that are foremost on their minds when they look at the state of education politics in Florida right now? Well, I mean, what's interesting is that the state of politics in Florida is just the counter opposite of what Broward's school district has traditionally been. I mean, they've been very much into social justice and pro LGBTQ, and they were in favor of these programs uh, like the Promise Program to, to help kids not get arrest records. And a lot of uh, the more conservative folks in Tallahassee didn't like any of these things, mm -hmm. and they are 
trying and passing a lot of laws. You know, they believe in the comprehensive sex education and the state believes in, you know, abstinence only. There's just all kinds of these social issues right. uh, that make it probably hard for a superintendent to guide a local school district that the culture probably doesn't match what the culture in Tallahassee is. Right. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing whether Florida's politics are making it harder to recruit education talent to the state. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Scott from Loxahatchee is on the line, and he believes that local autonomy has been taken away uh, from school districts in this state. Scott, uh, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Hey, uh, good afternoon. Yeah, I just think that this is just kind of one, another example of the, the ball that uh, DeSantis has cast over the state. I think it's, it's, it's evidence of the taking autonomy away from the local people that I think know best and saying, you know what, DeSantis knows best. Tallahassee yeah. knows best, and I, I, I think it, it, it's very Ortega-ish, it's very Chavez-ish. Chavez I just, I, I don't like the way the, the, the state is going, because you see what happened to the school over on the, the West Coast, I forget what, I think New, New you're, you're referring to New College, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, again, I think it's one example of this micromanaging of various localities that they're really different in culture they're different in personality and it's right. not it's kind of a one mm-hmm. one size fits best for everybody and that's not how it works well thanks scott and and, and scott travis uh, you know that word micromanagement was one that again came up with uh, deborah hickson the school board member she remarked in that clip we just played at the outset that the superintendent candidates likely worry about being quote micromanaged by the state and its very conservative agenda these days from your experience, is that a big preoccupation for a school superintendent in general? And, and so are we likely to see this superintendent recruiting difficulty play out not just in Broward, but in other Florida school districts? Yeah, well, I think one of the things you can look at is the debate that we had a, a couple of years ago on masks. And the Broward School Board had decided to defy what DeSantis and the state wanted and you know require students to wear masks. And then... Uh, Vicki Cartwright, who was the superintendent at the time, actually was not in favor of that, but she was doing what the school board wanted. And then she had to go up to Tallahassee to defend that. And then she became the uh, kind of face of the mask debate for Broward County when it really wasn't even her idea in the first place. And then you had the situation where the Board of Education chairman Um, When another issue came up involving the grand jury, he said, isn't this the same superintendent that was defending the masks? And they had made a recommendation that is this can the State Board of Education take any action to remove her? And I mean, they don't have any authority to do that. But that was sort of the first seed that was planted for her. Mm -hmm. And I think that she would be one who probably would argue that the state totally had a, a huge control. I mean, yeah. basically, the, she got fired a couple of times, and certainly there are issues that didn't involve the state. But, but the but, first time she got fired was after, because of a DeSantis-appointed right. board. But you, but you also cover higher education in Florida. We, we've heard complaints, if not protests, on public colleges and university campuses across the state that Governor DeSantis, uh, that his aggressive measures attempting to eliminate programs like diversity and critical race theory will also make it harder for them to them uh, in higher education to recruit administrators, professors, and students. Do they have a point, do you think? 
Well, that's certainly what the uh, the faculty unions argue, and I guess that remains to be seen whether that that plays out. But but certainly there's been a lot of concern because of the fact that. You know, it's one thing when you're talking about not wanting to, I guess, to use the state's term, indoctrinate or infiltrate uh, young kids with uh, ideology. That generally hasn't been, um, I, I mean, uh, college students are adults, so it's uh, it, it was a little bit harder for people to believe that they don't want to have classes on diversity and women's studies and things that have been uh traditional happening in, in school will just in colleges so we'll just have to see how mm -hmm. that plays out could this education turmoil also affect recruiting in other areas here like business I mean executives when they're recruiting for you know uh, the quality of schools uh, the situation in schools is often a factor in recruiting in that arena of life as well could could we see this uh, problem you know branching out into other areas of life in the state it could. I mean, I was actually listening to a radio show uh, earlier today where they were comparing Florida to Texas, which uh, the governors both have very similar views. But I guess Governor Abbott there in Texas hasn't been quite as uh, what they described as pugilistic uh, mm -hmm. is the term that they use. Right. And and basically they they haven't got he hasn't gone after some of trying to make you know, this is the place where woke goes to die. That might not be a philosophy that is attractive to, to businesses who may support diversity right. efforts that they've done in the past. Right. And finally, Scott, in the 30 seconds we have left, where do you see things headed now with the Broward superintendent search? Well, they're going to be having a meeting on Tuesday, so they have a couple of options. One, they can narrow the, the candidates. Uh, and another decision is they could decide to pause and you know take another approach but the the interim superintendent supports valerie wands and and isn't really interested in staying you know for a really long time while they mm -hmm. kind of figure this out so they may end up uh getting pressured into hiring either dr wands or somebody else relatively soon well we'll stay tuned scott travis is the south florida sun sentinels education reporter scott thanks very much all right thank you still to come an eruption of vigilante justice in Haiti. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Most of us are aware that because Haiti's government has collapsed, the country is in the grip of violent and heavily armed gangs. They're terrorizing Haitians through murder, ransom kidnappings, and hijackings of few food and fuel. They now control an estimated 80% of the capital, Port-au-Prince, and much of the rest of the country. And Haiti's thin police force is helpless to stop them. But in recent weeks, something has changed dramatically and disturbingly. Many Haitians are fighting back. That should be a positive turn. Problem is, the fight is being led by vigilante mobs. They've appointed themselves judge and executioner of suspected gang members, and they've so far killed more than 20 people, often in ghastly fashion and often without certainty that their victims are gangsters. This week, in fact, vigilantes reportedly lynched a police officer they mistook for a gang member. So, will this lead to the defeat? of Haiti's gangs, or will it create another violent monster for Haiti to deal with? It's a question other countries in the hemisphere have dealt with as well. 
Where do you think this is heading? Should the U.S. and the international community step in? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. With us now to help make sense of this is Marie Gerda Nicolas. She's Haitian-American and a professor of psychology at the University of Miami, and she does crisis outreach work in Haiti. Also with us is Haitian-American entrepreneur Christerson jean He owns a food exporting business in Haiti and hosts a YouTube program, See jean Chris, Marie Gerda, thanks for joining the South Florida Roundup. Hi, Tim. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having us. Marie Gerda, I want to start with you. As I mentioned at the outset, Haiti is hardly the first country to experience this vigilantism phenomenon. I've personally covered it in places like Venezuela and Mexico. As a psychologist who does a lot of work in Haiti, including programs like you have, like Rebati Santé Mental or the Haitian Mental Health Network, help us understand how this backlash was suddenly triggered among Haitians. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tim. And I think it's it really, and I, I appreciate you also highlighting the fact that this IT is not unique in that situation, right? And so, as, as you mentioned at the opening segment, IT has been in, in a state of crisis for years now, and there has been a call to the international community to intervene. And when we, when individuals, psychologically, when individuals find themselves in situation where there is a level of beyond fear, because fear is natural, but now you're in a state of terror, right? And you're asking for help regarding that terror and it's not coming, then the, and it's normal, like the Maslow needs of hierarchy tells us, like security and safety has to be a priority for individuals in terms of their well-being. And, and so what you're seeing now is that the, the outskirt of that cry where nothing has occurred, there's a sense that people feel like, well, we must take our own destiny into our own hands, right. Right? right? For the safety of the country. The one thing that has struck me about vigilantism in other countries is that it so often involves otherwise decent law-abiding law people. And later, and later on, they often say they look back horrified at what they took part in. Are, are you seeing that potentially playing out in Haiti as well? I, it, well, it definitely has the potential, right? It has the potential for, for that to happen. And, and as you said, at this particular moment, it is important for us to recognize we're talking about everyday citizens, right? Everyday individuals who have decided that they cannot allow for their country to, to, be, to continue to be in the hands of gangs and that they must step up and do something in the country. We're talking at, at the moment, at a moment right now. So yes, when one look at it later on, you can say, what could we have done better? But to your point, Tim, because we know, because we there are evidence and others, places that we can learn from it, this is the opportunity for us to come together as a collective and say, how do we step in and not necessarily say, let this be another case, mm-hmm. right? That we're right. going to look back as well. Christian T, you're speaking to us today from Pompano Beach, but in recent years, you've been living and working as an entrepreneur in Haiti. You've admirably seen potential in your family's home country. Your businesses employ several Haitians, and you too have had a close-up view of what they've been going through in in recent years. What would you say has driven so many of them now to essentially take the law in their own hands like this? 
Thanks, Tim, for the opportunity to, so to weigh in on this. Um, certainly it's something that is uh, causing, causing me to contemplate, you know, as always with Haiti, you know, what's the best way to, to understand what's happening and ultimately plan. Because one thing, as a, as a business owner, you always have to be very adaptable and not, not just to ensure that, you know, the business is doing well, but, but your people who are working for you are doing well. I, I always, before I try to contemplate anything, I try to look historically and then, and then take a step back and look at, at, at with the country as a whole. This vigilantism that we're, we're calling vigilantism, I think, you know, uh, some callers or folks listening may, may agree, may disagree, but I think those who understand Haiti well should agree with this next statement, which is Haiti has culturally had a uh, a mindset of dealing with uh, issues of criminality uh, quickly and amongst the community, right? Uh, when you look at the countryside, the countryside is, is, is even in, in this period right now, is quote unquote safer than Port-au-Prince, certainly. Mm -hmm. and, and, and one thing all Haitians understand is that one of the reasons why the countryside is so much safer is because of the fact that uh, any anything that riles up the community, any person who uh, is misbehaving, quote unquote, is going to be dealt with. Maybe maybe they'll mm -hmm. be, you know, you know, shot out or moved out of the community or, or worse. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think if anything, Port-au-Prince has always been looked at a little bit weird uh, because that inclination never occurred. You know, that bad element has always been allowed to foster. So I think maybe what we're seeing finally, maybe, is Port-au-Prince uh, falling in line with the culture and and folks who are doing wrong are going to be dealt with and dealt with by the community and not necessarily a very weak historically weak right. uh, government but chris let mm -hmm. me ask let me ask you this though chris do, do you worry that instead of reducing haiti's violent crime the vigilantism could instead end up deepening that crisis and i, I ask that because i've seen it happen before yes. elsewhere in the hemisphere vigilantism itself is a violent crime and the longer it goes on could it not help normalize violent crime i mean do we risk seeing vigilante groups themselves perhaps become gangs in their own right when you look at it just from a standpoint of statistics, you know, certainly you, you're going to you're going to say, yes, you know, crime has has gone up. Right. When you look at it from the standpoint of redeeming our, ourselves. Right. And, and getting us to a place where things will be better. Mm -hmm. I, I, I strongly feel that it's not going to take Haiti and Haitians down a road uh, that is it going to be able to redeem us? I think it's the inverse. It's taking us to a redeemable path where, you know, listen, Tim, the, the there's only maybe a few hundred, a thousand, two thousand gangsters, bandits out there. Right. There's in Port-au-Prince alone, five million people <laughs> and in the country, mm -hmm. 14 million. Yeah. Right. If these folks stand together and say, we're not going to take being victims anymore and make examples of of a, a few as we're seeing, I, I think the, the feeling amongst many that I've spoken to, mm -hmm. uh, business owners, just general people in the population who are watching and hoping things are better, the feeling is things will be better and things will be normal again. Okay. I'm Tim, I, I'm, I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the vigilante crisis in Haiti. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Marie-Guerre de Nicolas, I want to put that same question I just asked Chris to you. 
on the one hand, we want to applaud Haitians for trying to take back their streets, and we want to hope that this restores law and order in Haiti. But on the other hand, we're talking about incidents like one last week when 13 suspected gang members were burned to death by a mob without a trial. Where could this be taking Haiti and Haitians, Marie Gerda? Listen, Atem, I, I completely agree with what Chris is mentioning. I think that for me, um, there's a way that we, we sort of label things, Tim, that we want to be also be careful around. And I think Chris just did a brilliant job of talking about the need for Haitians to finally come together uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and to say enough is enough, right? That we, we're not going to wait anymore for international communities to come in and do because it's clear that nothing has resulted. And in fact, the international community, as we've seen, Tim, is complacent in many of the situations that's taking place. Mm -hmm. So for, for, I think it's important for us to not label this as vigilante and in that level of crisis yet, because as Chris just mentioned, that there are there are situations similar to when things happen in the six and communal outside of border points that people tend to deal with the people that engage in certain types of behaviors that is unbecoming of who we are as a society, right? So I do, I, I, I want to caution us. Yes, we want to be very mindful to, to ensure that this does not lead to more crisis that it needs to. But And at the same time, Tim, we the, the opportunity for Haitians to come together, whether or not it's outside, but it's inside the country to say, we need to stand strong to ensure that these things don't continue to happen, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's an important element of the story as well that we 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 don't want to lose sight of right. that. No, and I want to that can happen in a positive way. And I want to turn to that very important both of, point that both of you make about the complacency of the international community in all of this. I mean, Chris, that brings us to the obvious question of whether the U.S., Canada, and the rest of the international community should be stepping in more strongly to fight these gangs to keep the vigilantism from spiraling out of control. You and I have talked recently about this, and you've mentioned that perhaps your view on this has, has changed somewhat. You know, uh, it's a rock and a hard place because certainly uh, when this was happening perhaps a year ago, and, and we've always been, been in contact with him, and and, and I mentioned, for example, when the ports were closed and I run an export business, right? This was, it was a crisis. And I was, you know, m m um, writing letters to senators. In fact, hey, Haiti needs help. This is untenable. Not even just for my personal sake of bringing stuff out, but bringing stuff in, in a country that 80% of the population uh, is dependent on imports for, for, for substance, right? Um, so I certainly at that point in time, I was, you know, uh, campaigning for, for help from, from somewhere. As time has gone on and, and I've been able to reflect and things have gotten somewhat uh, stable, right? I've reflected more towards what could they really do and, and try to understand, first and foremost, why were they delaying? And, and there is, of course, historical precedent of uh, the international community doing more harm than good, right? And, and, exactly. so, and so my thought process is... Um, would they really been helpful compared to if it was a Haitian-led entity? And this is, this is it. You know, I mean, I may, I know the international community might be, uh, folks watching this from outside, maybe it may be difficult to understand, quote unquote, a country where, if, you know, if you have a, a disagreement, even for a few hundred bucks, you take somebody to civil court, <laughs> yeah. and, and the courts get you in within a, a few weeks, and, and you think you get things handled. Mm -hmm. But in Haiti, Haiti has always been uh, a a a pep-led. Uh, civic system 
where things get handled uh, in the community. And right. depending on the severity, uh, lends back to the severity of the treatment. And, and heck, mm-hmm. Tim, folks, kidnapping, murder. I mean, the, the, these bandits have not limited themselves to anything. So I'm going to have to say the PEP also should not limit themselves right. to anything to, to get their country back. Marie Gerda, how do you see yeah. Haitians, how do you see Haitians thinking about this now? Is there perhaps a feeling that well, we wouldn't have had to resort to the ugliness of vigilantism if the international community had been doing more to help us fight the gang plague in the first place? Listen, Tim, um, and 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 Chris, um, right on, Chris. I, I think Thank that um, I mean, many of us believe some of us, and I think there are other people among us who understood the role that international community has played and to some extent has been complacent in the current situation that we are in right now, right? right? So it's hard to ask the people who are actually causing the problem to also be the solver of the problem. But there was a hope, I think, there was a hope among us, many of us, who went to Washington, who went to meet with many of our elected officials to ask for change Mm -hmm. in the country. And it was clear, for two years we've been doing that since the assassination of the president, and nothing has taken place. So that's been really clear to us now. Understood. Marie Gerda, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Marie Gerda Nicolas teaches psychology at the University of Miami. Chris Lejeune is an entrepreneur and YouTube host in Haiti. He spoke to us today from Pompano Beach. Thanks very much to you both. Finally on the roundup, O Miami has been guiding South Florida through celebrations of poetry every April for more than a decade. Now that National Poetry Month has ended, O Miami collaborated with Apple Maps to release a list of the most poetic places in Miami to keep people inspired. WLRN's Gerard Albert III toured some of those spaces with the communications director for O Miami, Melissa Gomez. They started at one of the spots that pops up on the Apple Maps list in the historic black neighborhood of Brownsville. The Blue Station Stones are an installation by sculptural artist Beverly Buchanan. Eighteen large blue stones almost blend into the ferns and oaks that surround them. The American novelist Alice Walker wrote a poem for Buchanan after she died. It's printed on a sign in front of those stones. And while we're standing here, you may hear a a train go by because we are at the Arlington Heights Metrorail where this installation is. So, how do we make new and restorative of soul the old pain? How do we learn to carry with grace and humor all that has happened to us? Alice Walker. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. I'm Tim Paget. Happy Cinco de Mayo, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado.